Take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We have the privilege this morning to turn to John's final chapter in his gospel record. We've just been told in the end of chapter 20 that he's written all these things that we may know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. In fact, you, you might have come to the end of last week's chapter and last week's sermon and thought that would be a good place to end the, ser- the, the gospel. Like you might think sometimes when I'm preaching, that'd be a good place to end the sermon. And then it keeps going. And that's exactly what John does here. He just keeps going. He has more to tell us. He has a, a word after the word. Instead of laying down his pen and getting lunch, he continues on and has more to tell us of this unique encounter between the disciples and the risen Jesus. Can you imagine as John wrote his gospel and obviously filled with and led by, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he, he comes to the end and, of chapter 20 and, and it feels like it's the end, but he's compelled to, to say one more thing. He has one more encounter to tell us about. And it forms really the, the epilogue, the word after the word. John's gospel is unique in that it has a, a prologue and an epilogue prologue is the word before the word. That's John 1, verses 1 through 18. He gives us the theological table. He kind of spreads it out for us in those 18 verses to let us know who this Jesus is, this word who became flesh, that he's the creator of all things, that he's co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal with the Father, that being all those things, he also is life, and being life, he is the light of men. And be in the light of men, that if men would believe in his name, they will have life in his name and have eternal life with him. And, and that in and through this Jesus, John says in the prologue, we have received grace upon grace because he came to us. He tabernacled with us. He took on our flesh and, and dwelt in our existence. And because of that, we've received, John says, grace upon grace. Grace, And then he says, through Moses, we got the law, but through Jesus Christ, we've received grace and truth. That was the prologue, setting of the theological explanation of Jesus. And now we come to the end of the book, and, and now it's the epilogue, the, the tidying of things, the, the closing down of the book. And what is it that John's going to say? And you might expect him to say, here's what the resurrection means. You might expect him to go to some deep theological truth, as John's prone to do, and explain to us how the resurrection impacts not only our eternity, but our daily living. But instead, instead, we have this unique encounter, this very raw, real, common experience between Jesus and his disciples. It's so crucial to understand that we're going to take two weeks to work through chapter 21. I want to consider this morning just the first 14 verses, but they come together as a package. You must know that. You have to know the first part to understand what happens between Peter and Jesus in the second part. John 21 verse 1 says this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Just a side note, those two others were probably Andrew and Philip, Andrew being the brother of Peter and Philip being the close friend of Nathaniel who went and found Nathaniel and said, we've found the Messiah. 
These seven men are likely the, the fishermen of the group. Maybe others were too. But these men had made their living as fishermen. And here they are now after the resurrection of Jesus, after some time after Jesus had appeared to them in the upper room. Now they're in Galilee at the Sea of Galilee. And verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. I think it's hilarious that John, who had to haul the fish load back to shore, make sure we know that Peter abandoned them and swam to shore, and he had to, had to tug it in all the way to shore, and it was about 100 yards, just so you know. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What a scene. Like every good fisherman, they know exactly how many fish they caught. And they have the story to tell, and it's a whale of a story, of a fishing story to tell. What a, an appearance of our Lord. It's his third time appearing to this group. On Resurrection Sunday, he came to their gathering in the upper room, and he appeared to all of them minus Thomas, who, as we saw last week, because of his little faith, probably wasn't in the room, who showed up shortly after Jesus had left the room and heard, hey, Jesus was just here, and you missed him. And then eight days later, a week later on that next Sunday night, Jesus came back to them as they were gathered in the upper room, again, I believe, to worship on the Lord's Day gathered together, Jesus appears to all of them and says to Thomas, see my hands, put your hands in the wounds of the scars now healed through resurrection. And he says, my Lord and my God. Now, sometime later, they find themselves at the Sea of Galilee. We have no idea how long. We know there's a 40-day interval between resurrection and ascension. We know a week has passed because it's been a week since he appeared to them on Resurrection Sunday and then to Thomas and the rest. Now we have no idea how much longer it is. We just know that the disciples are waiting in Galilee. They finally went to Galilee. Jesus had told them through the women, go to Galilee, to this mountain, and I will meet with you there. Remember, he tested them all day Sunday. They didn't leave. They stayed in the upper room. So he came to them in the upper room and showed them he was resurrected from the grave. And I believe again said, go to Galilee. They find themselves in Galilee, and they are again waiting, waiting on the Lord. Was our Lord not testing them again? 
Was he not testing both the, the reality of their faith and the quality of their faith? Did they actually take Jesus at his word that he would come to them and that he would come soon? As they wait and as Jesus doesn't come, Peter does what any restless man does and goes back to what he knows. Peter finally has had enough of it and says to the group, I can't sit here anymore. I cannot wait anymore. I'm going to go do what I know how to do. I'm going fishing. Now, I want to be clear with you. The text does not explicitly condemn Peter or these disciples for going back to fishing. But I think there's clues in the text that let us know that they were on the wrong track. And that Jesus appeared to them in this moment because He was snatching them back. He was bringing them back to Himself. He was restoring them to their calling as His disciples. Notice that John names most of the men who go fishing with Peter. As I mentioned, these are all the men who are from Galilee, who lived around the Sea of Galilee, who were fishermen by trade. And so while they wait on the Lord and they don't know what to do, they do what they know what to do. They go back to what they have learned their whole lives. And they do this because they're drifting. They're spiritually drifting. They're confused. They don't understand. They're disillusioned. They don't grasp the fullness of Jesus' resurrection. They don't know what it means to the course of their own lives. They don't understand the fullness of their commission. When Jesus said to them, as the Father sent me, now so send I you. And they're here at the Sea of Galilee wondering, what does that mean? And where are you, Jesus, to tell us what that means? And so these men go back and cast their nets into the sea. And just like they cast their nets into the sea, our Savior appears on the, the shoreline of their lives and casts, as it were, a net around them and slowly, carefully, and wisely draws it in and draws these men back to Himself and recommits them and recommissions them to serve Him. You could say, if you will, that He is catching fishermen in this text. In this fishing operation by our Lord, we see John bring his gospel record, to, I think, to a fitting conclusion. It's a mirror of the prologue. This, this closing word forms a, a fitting inclusio, a good bookend that mirrors the beginning of the Gospel of John. He set the theological table for us in the prologue. He made known to us who this Jesus would be. And now at the end, he's demonstrating who this Jesus is. So he told us in the beginning who this Jesus would be, what his essence and his nature and his character would look like. That he would be life and light. That he would bring grace upon grace. That through him we will receive grace and truth. He spent the whole book showing how that happened. And now at the end, he wants you to know from one last encounter with the disciples that all of those things are still true post-resurrection. That Jesus is the same Savior who went to the cross, who came out of the tomb. He is still life and light. He is still grace and truth. And we see that in this interaction with these disciples in John 21. He's declared to be it in John 1. He's demonstrated to be this in John 21. And frankly, what better moment for Jesus to show us His nature to make known His essence and His character than in this situation in John 21. Floundering disciples, confused men, 
toying with the idea. His closest associates on planet Earth, those who he brought into his inner circle, those who knew Jesus better than anyone else, and they're not sure what to do. And as we saw last week, we all resonate with that. Sometimes we don't know what to do. We have small faith like them sometimes. And they're floundering and discouraged and confused, and Jesus comes to them. Jesus comes to them. He intercepts them. And He restores them. This interaction that we're going to look at is the foundation for Jesus to call them into loving service in the second half of the chapter. He's going to say to Peter, do you love me? You know, Lord, I love you. Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? You know, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Peter, tend my flock. You see, what we're going to look at next week is the outflow of this foundation. Jesus will restore these men to Himself and then He will call them to loving service to Him for the rest of their lives. And you cannot be called to this loving service of our Lord for the rest of your life unless you see in the resurrected Jesus that He is life, that He is light, that He is grace, and that He is truth. This is what we see evidenced in His interaction with these disciples in John 21. I want to show you that in His coming to them. So He's grace and truth and life and light. I want to show you that in His coming to them. Verse 1 and verse 14, again, kind of bookend our section. I know I keep saying that because it's so helpful in reading John. He often does that. Verse 1, He says, this is how Jesus revealed Himself again to His disciples. Verse 14, He says, this is now the third time he, Jesus revealed Himself to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. This does not mean, this revelation does not just mean showing up and showing Himself to them. It means far more than that. He's making Himself known to them. He's helping them understand Him. He's helping them grasp the fullness of His resurrection life and power. And here we see amazing grace, don't we? Isn't this eye-catching, soul-stopping, heart-pounding grace? That Jesus would come to them again and again and again. We learned last week that all these men had faith which walked with a limp. They all struggled. They all needed crutches. And Jesus was happy to keep showing up and giving them their crutches to keep helping them struggle along. Jesus does not just show up in their struggle and say to them, listen, I came once. I was nice. I was kind. I came again. I was nice. I was kind. I let you touch me. I let you talk with me. This is the third time, guys. Enough's enough, don't you think? Three times. Maybe this can be the charm. Maybe you guys can get it here, right? He doesn't do that. That's what I would do. I wouldn't have made it through the first two as kindly as he did. We're not Jesus. Praise God. He comes with grace for these men. He loves them. And in light of their sinfulness and their unbelief and their doubting and their struggling, he comes to them and draws his net of love slowly around them. 
to bring them back to himself. This is also evidence of his life and his light and his truth, isn't it? These disciples are in literal darkness of night. It's just now started to turn to the light of day, John says. And, and here, Jesus shows up. And what's happening physically is, is, I think, meant to point you to what's happening spiritually. These men are in darkness spiritually. They don't, they don't understand. I don't mean unregenerate darkness. I just mean they're, they're confused. They're disillusioned. They don't understand. And Jesus shows up on the shore of their life. And as day breaks, he helps them understand themselves and himself and what true belief would look like. He brings them to the light of truth and understanding and brings his life to bear upon their souls. He also validates the truth of his resurrection once again, proving that he is the truth and he is the life. He, he comes once more to tell them, listen, I really did die and I really am alive again. Now, just for the sake of jurisprudence, just think about the necessity of Jesus coming to show himself as a resurrected one to his apostles, his disciples. How many times did he need, need to do that? Once, right? Just one time he had to show up and prove to them that he rose from the grave. Make known to them that he had conquered sin and death and hell. They had already seen him. They had already touched him. They had already watched him eat broiled fish to know that he had a physical, literal body that had been raised from the grave. He had told them, I'm soon returning to my Father. And when I do, I'll send my, help, your, my helper to you and he will indwell you and help you and I'll soon come back for you. And I've given you enough evidence that I rose from the grave and, and you have it all. And then he, he comes back. And he comes back because he knows they still need more. They need more time, more evidence. They need more grace. I also want you to see this in His providing for them. We see His grace and His truth and His life and His light and that He comes to them, but also that He provides for them. And I mean both in, in when He provides for them and in how He provides for them. So they've determined to go back to their old ways. I know, as I mentioned, Jesus doesn't explicitly rebuke them for that, but there's key clues in the text that point to they're not supposed to be doing this. And Jesus comes to them and says, you're not supposed to be doing this. The first clue to, to knowing that this is not where they're supposed to be is that they're in the wrong location. Jesus told them a specific mountain to go to in Galilee to wait for Him. They're not there. They're at the Sea of Galilee. The second clue is in John 16 and verse 32 when in the upper room, Jesus predicted to them ahead of time and He says, listen, the hour has come when each of you will return to your own home. And in the Greek, literally, it's to your, your own things, your own stuff. You'll abandon me and go back to, to you. You'll, you'll go back to doing your own life. Jesus had predicted that response and the crucifixion and resurrection proved it. Here they are, back to their own stuff. The third clue that they're not where they should be is the little word, the, in front of boat in verse 3. This is not any boat. This is the boat. And this is the boat probably that Peter and his family owned. Likely the very same boat that Jesus stood on in Luke 5. The boat they had abandoned and turned away from and left behind to follow Jesus. And now they go back to the boat. The family fishing business. 
The fourth clue is in our text for next week. It's in verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus will turn to Simon Peter and he'll say to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I know there's a lot of debate of what are the these. But in the broad context of chapter 21, the best understanding, the best interpretation of these is his fishing gear. Do you love me more than these nets, these boats, all the trappings of your fishing industry, and even the fish you have caught? So all four of those lines of evidence, it seems obvious that Jesus is gently drawing these men back into himself. He's he's gently confronting them and saying, you're going the wrong way. You're adrift on the wrong sea. You need to return to me. So what does he do? Well, he draws them back by providence. This is instructive for you, so listen. He draws them back by providence. God is daily, minute by minute, second by second, at work in your life by His providential power. He has the ability to give you everything you want and or need for every problem you face right now. He has the ability to change every part of your life that you wish were different. And by His providence, and not only that, the the positive side, He, by His kindness, has given you everything that is a blessing to you. Every kindness of His mercy extended to you blossoms in your life at the extension of His providence. And so in His providence, both in what He doesn't give and in what He does give, He's at work in your life to draw you to Himself. That's exactly what's happening with these men. He does not provide for them all night long. And then He appears and in a moment's notice, He gives them a massive catch. The emphasis in verse 3 is on that night. That night, they caught nothing. In other words, most nights when they went fishing, they caught something. There was one other night recorded in the Gospels. We'll look at it in a minute. It's in Luke 5 when they also fished all night and caught nothing. And it's in those moments when they caught nothing, unusually, that Jesus shows up and intersects their lives and recommissions them to follow Him. They knew this body of water. They were seasoned fishermen. They knew their boats. They knew their gear. They knew where to fish like a farmer knows the hot spots in his favorite field and like a child knows how to get his favorite candy out of his grandparents. They knew where to go to to draw up the fish. And they had done it all night long, and they had caught nothing. Is that a mistake? Is that just a happy happenstance for Jesus? Oh, look, they didn't have anything. Now I can work. Of course not. He was at work in the lack of provision. And now, having nothing to show for it, Jesus, in His providence, shows up and says to them, Have you caught anything or better you haven't caught anything have you determined to show them that their self-determined self-reliant ways has produced nothing the simple fact put these men in a position to receive the providential correcting of Jesus that they hadn't caught anything makes them aware that Jesus is about to teach them a lesson they need to listen up to and lean into Brother, sister, sometimes the most grace-filled, life-giving, truth-saturated thing Jesus can do for you is to withhold something from you. 
to keep something from your hands. And in his providence and in his wisdom, he knows when and how, exactly how long that needs to happen to get your attention in your self-reliant plans and your self-determined actions to bring you to a point of frustration and in your empty-handed condition to have your attention. That's exactly where these disciples are. Jesus appears on the shore. They don't know that it's him yet. What happens next is so similar to what happened in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. In John 21, Jesus asks them if they've caught anything. When they say no, he says, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch something. There you will find fish. They do. They catch 153 of them. Do you remember what happened in Luke 5, 1 through 11? It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, so we're rewinding the tape. We're going back three years prior to John 21, about three years prior. They're probably in in almost the exact same location because they're back with the same boats and the same gear. They're probably in the same spot. Jesus has been doing amazing miracles and, and an amazing quantity of miracles in Galilee. He's been going from town to town and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 5 verse 1 tells us that he had a large crowd gathered around him who wanted to hear the word. And and what does he do? He sees men who have brought their boats to shore and who are outside of their boats cleaning their nets. And so he says to one of them who is Simon Peter, the text tells us, he gets into the boat and he asks him to push off from shore so he can address the crowd from a distance offshore so they all can hear. He does that and when he's done teaching, he says to Peter, Now let's go out into the deep waters and fish again. And Peter says, we've been out here all night and we didn't catch anything. But okay, if that's what you want to do, that's what we'll do. They go out, they push out to the deep part of the sea. Peter throws his net overboard and he can't bring the net back in. It's so full of fish. He calls out to his co-laborers in the other boat. He says, this is big enough for two. Get your boat out here quickly. They bring their boat out. They bring the net in, and it start, has so many fish, it starts to sink both boats. Now, if you're Peter, seasoned fisherman, this is your livelihood, what are you thinking in this moment? Hey, maybe we can strike a deal here, Lord. Like, maybe you could show up every three months. We can, we can work this out. You can, you can teach from my boat a little bit, and then we'll push out, and I'll give you 50% of the profit. Can we work that out? No, what does he do? What, is, what does Peter do? falls on his face before this man who is obviously more than a man. He says to Jesus in the boat, depart from me. I am a sinful man. We get back to shore. You remember what happens next? Jesus says, no longer are you going to be dealing with fishing for fish. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Luke 5.11 says they turned from everything they had and they followed Jesus. Here we are now three years later and these men are back in that spot with that stuff. On that sea. Fishing for those fish. And here they see they have not caught anything. A man on shore says throw it to the other side. I don't know why they did, frankly. One commentator said it must have been a a divine unction that made them do it. And I tend to agree. I mean, there's just no human reason why you, as a seasoned fisherman, 
hear from a guy on shore who you have no idea who he is say to you, hey, throw it to the right side of the boat because that'll have fish. And you say, oh, okay, and do it. Only because I think because it's Jesus and there's divine unction here. Without even knowing what they're doing, they obey. They obey the voice of the Lord just like all things were created at the compelling reality of His authoritative voice. They obeyed and did it and caught a massive catch. And what happens? John immediately realizes who this is. John usually perceives first. And then Peter usually acts first. John perceives and says, Adam, that must be the Lord. Only Jesus would do this. Peter, it's the Lord. Peter ties up his outer garment around his waist so he doesn't sink while he swims, and he dives in the water to get to the shore as fast as he can to see Jesus. You see what's happening here? Jesus in His providence is, is intercepting them. Drawing them back to Himself and, and saying to them, you need to follow Me. Not only that, but when they get to shore, He's prepared for them a breakfast, meal, fire-roasted fish and bread. So He's provided for them abundantly in the fish, and now He provides for them a meal on the shore. And you just need to think creatively about this. He doesn't have to do this. He can just bring them back to shore and say, okay, now listen, I've got your attention. Here's what you need to learn. Don't do this again. Right? That's what I would do. No, He in His kindness, in His grace, because He's a, a God of life, knows they've been working all night, are tired and hungry, need the kindness of just normal provisions. And so with, with rich grace, the the bounty of His goodness, He provides for them everything they need on the shore. And again, draws their heart back to Himself. Not only that, but He wants them to know through this meal that He prepares for them that He wants to be with them. They're not sure they want to be with Him. They're not even sure where He's at. They're not sure what this post-resurrection relationship looks like. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to serve, but Jesus says, no, I want you with me. Come and eat of the fish that I have prepared for you. He reminds them through this object lesson that when they go about it their own way and under their own power, that they can do nothing. They can't fill any net, whether physical or spiritual. And so if they're going to be His apostles and be fishers of men, if they're going to go about it in their own strength and by their own design and under their own directives, they're not going to get anything. Jesus has already told them in John 15 and verse 5, I am the true vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will produce great fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. These men have not learned that yet. They've heard it. They've comprehended it in theory. Now they're learning it in practice. When on the boat all night, they could do and then Jesus shows up and says, throw it to the other side. And they haul in one of their greatest catches. Not only that, but he's also teaching them through this object lesson that if you will seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. You can run from me and do your own thing with your own life and go back to fishing and you will struggle every day. You'll be miserable. You'll fish and not catch. But if you will do what I tell you to do, if you will follow me, 
If you'll throw the net on the side of the boat, I tell you to from shore, you will be abundantly supplied. And every servant of God who has put that to the test can give a hearty amen that when you give yourself wholeheartedly to loving, serving, and following Jesus, as imperfect as your wholehearted devotion is, God blesses again and again with your daily bread and shows you and affirms to you that if you will seek Him first, He'll add all of that to your account. Then I want to show you Jesus' life and light and grace and truth and how He speaks to them. What He says to them when He comes. We, we don't have a long section of His teaching them in chapter 21. We just have a little bit of conversation. But in that little bit of conversation, we get a clue into the character and nature of Jesus. And in verse 5, he asks them that question, do you have any fish? And it's really better translated, you don't have any fish, do you? It expects a negative answer. He's, he's drawing out the truth of the matter. He's helping them see the reality of what's happening. In other words, he's saying, hey guys, how's it going under your self-directed, self-determined, self-dependent ways? How did that turn out for you? At the end of a long night, have you... Have you caught anything? You went back to what you could control. To what you could have your hand constantly in to, to dominate and a domain of life that you thought you could have success at. And, and I'm asking you, how, how's that going for you? You don't have any fish, do you? This whole following Jesus thing kind of turned into a disaster for these men. Their Lord was killed. They were being hunted by the Sanhedrin. They were afraid for their lives. They had seen Jesus a couple times, but they weren't sure what to make of it all. And here they stand unsure and unsteady. And now Jesus stands on shore and says, it's not working for you, is it? How you're handling it isn't going well, is it? This is Jesus' gracious, gentle, kind way to, to bring truth to bear upon their consciences. One maxim of communication, and particularly as it relates to parenting, that Julie and I learned early on in our training was that questions prick the conscience and accusations close the spirit. That's exactly what we see modeled by Jesus here. He comes to them and he asks them a question. He asks them a question not to, not to draw them to a conclusion necessarily, but to show them that what they're doing is not Helpful, not right, and not good. And then we see his light and that he tells them to cast their net on the right side of the boat. In other words, he, he knows they're operating in the dark and they don't know what's going on. They don't know where the fish is. And Jesus simply, in, in a way to give them an object lesson, says that all the fish are on the right side. Just put your net over there. And they walk in his light and they see him provide. And so he teaches them in the many dark paths they're going to face as followers of Jesus. He is their light. And though He may just light the next step of the path through the valley of the shadow of death, they can know that they do not need fear any evil. For He is their Lord and their shepherd and their light and their life. And then look at the words of verses 10-13 through 13 and see His life and grace. He says to them, bring this large catch to a fish on shore. In other words, He's, he's concerned for their livelihood. It's not just an object lesson. It is that. But it's more than that. He wants them to be provided for. He wants them to keep the fish. 
So bring them on shore. This is your livelihood. Split up the profits and make sure you are well supplied. Not only that, but on shore, he speaks to them and invites them to breakfast in verse 12. Notice they are hesitant to respond. They don't know what to do. They, should they come and, and take the fish? What's happening here? Who is this man? We know he's Jesus, but he's, he's post-resurrection Jesus. This is different for us. How do we relate to him? Before he died, we were confident of his humanity. We, we sat with him and we walked with him and we heard him and we saw every part of his life and, and now he's resurrected. He's, he's come out from the tomb. Who is this man? They knew he was him, but he knew, they knew he was different. It's helpful to think of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 45 when after many years of them selling him into slavery and presuming him to be dead at this point. Now have him reveal himself to them in a position of authority over them as a, a chieftain in Egypt. And in verse 3 of chapter 45, he lets himself know that he is their brother Joseph. And it says, they were terrified of him. He's alive. He's not dead, but things have changed. Similarly, here with Jesus, he's alive. He's not dead, but things have changed. This is our Lord and our God, our Master, our Savior, but he is resurrected. So Jesus welcomes them in, encourages them not to be dismayed by his presence, to eat with him. In other words, have a close relationship with me. Come into fellowship with me around a meal. Come and eat with me. This is a, a gospel invitation, isn't it? Isn't this why Jesus came to us? So that then he could say to us, come to me. He couldn't just appear without giving Himself as a sacrifice for our sins and, and say, come to Me, because we couldn't have come because of our sin. But He came to us first and dwelt among us and lived a life of pure sinlessness so that He could lay down that life as a perfect sacrifice in place of our condemnation and the righteous wrath we've earned by our sinfulness. So that by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary and His victorious resurrected life from the grave. We can have life in Him and He can say to us, come to Me. Come and dine with Me. Come and eat with Me. This is the, the nucleus of that supernova of grace that is from Genesis to Revelation. This overflow of the bountiful goodness of God that we see on every page and in every minute of our lives. The nucleus of that supernova is we get to be with God forever. He can say to us, come to me and we can go to God and have peace with Him now and forever. This is how the book of Revelation ends, by the way. You know, John wrote the book of Revelation as Jesus appeared to him. It's, it's the revelation not just of, of last things. It is that. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and how he will appear and come and return and bring all things to their conclusion. And his glorious nature, the nature of life and 
light and grace and truth will abound in those last days, right? So truth will, will be brought by the second coming of Jesus upon all of the world's deception and all of the devil's deceiving tactics in opposition to God. His life will be brought and conquer sin and death and hell forever when He returns. His grace will come and He will rescue sinners who are still trapped in the reality of a sin-cursed, devil-dominated world and He'll make them His own and usher them into His eternal presence filled with His grace. And light will conquer darkness as darkness is fully defeated and thrown into the eternal lake of fire, never to be seen again. And so he says at the end of the book, Revelation 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say to Jesus, Come. Sound like a familiar word? Come. John goes on to say, Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And then he finishes the book and says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Beloved, this is a gospel invitation by our Lord to His disciples to return to Him, to come have fellowship with Him in this life and then ultimately in the life to come. If you're here this morning and you're spiritually thirsty, completely and totally out of spiritual satisfaction, never had it and don't know where to get it. You're spiritually hungry. You, you know you need the bread of life. You, you need something to help you survive, but you don't know what it is. John says to you, and I say to you, Jesus is the bread of life. He is the water of life. Come from Him and buy without money. You don't need to bring anything. Just come and He will give you life abundant and eternal. Brother or sister, are you spiritually drifting or confused or disillusioned? We all end up in our own world with our own stuff back on the Sea of Galilee at times. We all end up throwing our own nets into our own sea trying to figure out how we're going to make this work. If that's you this morning, you, as you wait for Jesus to return and to take care of the mess of this world and you're unsure and unsteady and don't know how you should live in this dark, deceived world, what's the answer for you? To know all the latest headlines? All the latest troop movements in Israel and Gaza? What's the answer for you? To have enough food stored up when, when the final day shows up, you, you can maybe make it through a week or two? What's the answer for you? Pour yourself into your friendship so that you at least have that to last when everything else gives way? What gives you hope? What gives you a purpose? What gives you a reason to live and serve and take the next breath and the next step in this life of faith? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Because He's the right answer. What's the key that unlocks that door? It is the resurrected Christ who shows up on the shore of your life and beckons you unto Himself and, and says, this isn't working for you, is it? 
Come to me and follow me, and I will give you rest and food. I am the vine. You are the branches, Jesus said. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for your word, for its power to confront and cleanse our hearts. We ask that you would mercifully move in us individually and corporately to return us to Jesus. Would you show us where we are adrift, disillusioned and confused? And would you turn our eyes to our resurrected Lord? And in him, would you make all things clear as you bring to us through him life and light, grace and truth? We praise you that this is true. We ask that it would be so. In Jesus' name, amen.